This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. Well, good evening, and I want to say welcome again. Uh, join my voice with everybody here tonight and say welcome. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, tonight we're going to join with the global church in recognizing Orphan Sunday. Lots of churches have already been celebrating Orphan Sunday, and we're, we're joining with them here today. Now, Orphan Sunday is a reminder of what God has done, how we can participate. And before we think about our life in terms of caring for orphans, we have to first see kind of what the Bible says about that whole concept, that whole terminology of, of the orphan and about adopting. Because before it's something that we do, it's something that we are. And that's what I hope that we see today in the book of Galatians. So if you can take your Bible or your device and turn uh, to the book of Galatians in the New Testament. It's kind of halfway through the, the New Testament. It's just a short book that the Apostle Paul wrote in defense of the gospel in a really controversial time in the life of the church. And we're going to look at chapter 4 and specifically the first seven verses of chapter 4 of Galatians and I hope that we see together in these seven verses three, three truths. And then we're just going to just take some next steps from there. Just what's the next step for us on, on a concept like Orphan Sunday? But these three truths being that we need to be rescued, number one. That number two, God has provided rescue. And, and number three, we have a new identity. So let's read Galatians 4, 1 through 7, and then pray and we'll get going here. Verse 1 says, I, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Father, we ask right now that by this very spirit that inspired this text, this very spirit that seals our adoption, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to see what's plain and evident in your scripture, and Lord, that you would open up our hearts mostly to you, that you would just open up our hearts fully and totally to the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus, and that you would just move us outward in obedience, Lord. Those three things, Lord, we're asking by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, three truths. We need to be rescued. God has provided the rescue, and we have a new identity because of the rescue. So let's look at the first three verses. We need to be rescued. So notice what he says here. 
uh, to this Galatian church, and not just one single church, but multiple churches Paul's writing to. He says this, I mean that the heir, so he's, he's pick, I'm just, we're going to start right there. He said, you know, three chapters on into this whole concept of being an heir through Christ, and now he's going to break it down. So he's going to summarize all that he said, and I'm sorry that we don't have time. Time does not allow us to go through three chapters, and all God's people said, Amen. So we're just going to pick it up right here. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So there's this reality that the heir doesn't get when he's a child. He's using the illustration of an heir growing up alongside a slave in the same household. There's a reality that, that the child doesn't get in that context because he doesn't realize that he's the owner of everything. Verse 2 says, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So there's this future reality that the, that the heir will come into, uh, but he doesn't realize it yet. Verse 3 says, in the same way, we also. So he's saying, I, this is an illustration of a reality. In the same way, not exactly the same way. But in the, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Slavery. He starts there with this church, and he says, listen, you need to know something about yourself before Christ came, before the gospel reached your ears you are enslaved and you need to be rescued. Now, the question could be, well, what does he mean by enslaved to the elementary principles of the world? What does that mean? It's kind of a, a big concept there. Elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? Well, look down at verses 8 through 11. He says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. Same word. To those that by nature are not gods. So he's talking about there is some kind of a demonic enslavement. The elementary principles of the world are just no, no, just no big deal kind of thing. This is some kind of a demonic oppression. You are enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, see, see the personal relationship? Or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Same word, same, same word up there in, in verse 1. Whose slaves you want to be once more. So he says that's, that's the idea. So here's what's happened, just so we are all on the same page. Visiting preachers have tried to persuade the Galatians that justification that's being declared righteous before God comes through circumcision and obedience to the entire law. So Paul has preached something completely different than this. And he's left, and now these visiting preachers, you know, from the outside, just like Jesus said would happen, have come in and they've, they preached a different gospel, a different message. And they didn't say, you know, know Jesus. They said, Jesus is good, but you need to also keep the entire law continually throughout your life, and you're slowly justified and slowly declared good before God. 
Jesus' death and his resurrection and faith in his substitutionary work alone is not enough for you. You need to earn it. You need to work at it. And slowly you can be, be justified. It's an earned righteousness that these visiting preachers have come in and declared justifies you. And the way that they got an audience is the same way that people get an audience today. They appealed to the supernatural. They appealed to angelic divine visitation. By what authority, you know, can, can, can we and should we listen to your message when the Apostle Paul, who, who met Jesus himself, declared to us the gospel, and this is something different? Well, they appealed to an angelic revelation. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in chapter 1 when he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And that's why he says, if, if an angel from heaven comes and tells you something different than the gospel that I preached to you, he says, anathema, which is a word that means cursed, be that teaching. Any teaching that whittles its way into justification by faith alone and the substitutionary work of Christ alone for your justification before God is a different hear this, gospel. And there are different gospels all over the place. There's all kinds of ways that you and I are told to earn our righteousness before God. And you know it's easy to fall into because everything in our world is an earn it world. Earn it. You work hard. You hustle. And you earn something at the end of the day. It, it's, it's a principle of life. But when you take that, that principle of life and you, you overlay that over your spiritual soul, then grace finds no place. And that's what these Galatians are, are about to lose, is the concept and the teaching of grace. And that, that legalistic superstition that is creeping into the church is ending up being a demonic oppression at the end of the day. Now, this is serious stuff. Hear this. Islam and Mormonism, although on the external look so different from each other, are both contemporary examples of religion based on revelation given by an angel that teaches a different gospel than justification by faith alone in the substitutionary work of Christ alone. And we, have, we have Mormon friends. But this teaching, Paul says, is not the gospel. It is a different gospel. And we should, and he was astonished that we and so many quickly desert him who called you in the grace of Christ to turn to it. And somebody could be here today, you could be a new person, you could be new to the Bible, you could be new to the church, new to grace, new to the whole thing, and you're, you could be sitting there going, whoa, 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 hit the brakes here. I mean, if, if you have an earned righteousness, is that really a problem? I mean, we're, you still have righteousness, right? I mean, if your personal righteousness, although it's an earned righteousness, it's still righteousness, even though you're saying it's not Christ's righteousness. I mean, is this different shades of the same color? I mean, what's the problem? I mean, you, you, you say I need Christ's righteousness. I say I have a personal earned righteousness. 
Well, Paul says personal righteousness for justification when the standard is God ends up having a reverse effect. It stops being an asset and becomes a liability. Let me give you an illustration of how that can happen. A few years ago, I decided to bless my wife in in taking her out uh, for her birthday And I thought I would surprise her by taking her salsa dancing. And never mind the fact that I had never, ever gone salsa dancing. But I thought it would be fun and exciting to go do this. And so I looked up a place in Dallas called Gloria's. I don't know if anybody's been to Gloria's. Anybody had dinner at Gloria's? I know one person has. And uh, we had a wonderful dinner among friends and I invited everybody to stay after for the salsa dancing. And I was, I was confident that I knew how to salsa dance with my wife uh, at this event, at this birthday party. And I was confident because I did what every, every man does. I looked up the YouTube video <laughs> on how to salsa dance. And I looked at it. It was a beginner level. And I said, I can do this. I can do what those guys are doing on the, on the video. And I, I was pretty confident, in fact, that I could salsa dance. And I, I showed it to Michelle, and I said, let's try this in the living room. And if you're comfortable, we'll go to Gloria's. And after we eat at the restaurant and they bring out the band at the end, we're going we're gonna to go hit the floor with our friends, and we're going to salsa dance, and we're going we we're to have a great time. Well, the night comes, and we have a wonderful dinner uh, Uh, Strangely, nobody could stick around and salsa dance with us. (laughs) So we were momentarily discouraged by that. But I'd watched the video, and she had too. And we had practiced one time in the living room on how to salsa dance. And so we were ready to go. So uh, it's hard to describe what happens at Gloria's when this happens. But um, they transformed this restaurant. I mean, it's a completely, it's a restaurant in Dallas, wonderful Mexican food, awesome. And then they just, they transform it in like 20 minutes. And then the band takes the stage. And we're talking about full-on trumpets and, I mean, just instruments I've never heard of before. And they, they start up. And we're ready. I mean, we're, we've been geared up for this. We're ready to salsa dance. Uh, we look a little weird there. Uh, just before we even hit the floor, we looked weird. And, uh, but we're about to go do this. And the music starts and, and, and the folks rush onto the floor, onto the dance floor to salsa dance. And man, it took about three seconds for us to realize whatever we thought salsa dancing was, <laughs> what, whatever that guy was teaching on the video was not salsa dancing at all. At all. It didn't look anything like what we were witnessing. And I called ahead. I was like, is this beginner level? And she said, oh, yeah, these people, they're just beginners there. It's not experts or anything out there. These people out there just, I can't even describe. I mean, just, I don't, it's hard, hard to even fathom what we were witnessing. It was almost like our heart just sunk right there in that moment. Like, and we looked at each other and we're not going to do what we practiced in the living room. We're, we're just not. We're not even going to try it. Because in that moment, we realized that whatever we thought this was, salsa dancing, ours was of a different nature 
and a different kind and a different thing altogether. And our salsa dancing on the floor of Gloria's was a liability. It was not an asset. It was, we did not know anything about what we were doing, and we were embarrassingly out of place and out of step with reality. That's just a funny illustration. But do you realize that sometimes we can be embarrassingly out of touch and out of place with reality because we just haven't seen the real thing? So we think that we're, we can be righteous. We think we can be holy in and of ourselves in this earned place and earn our way into the family of God and not realize that we are embarrassingly out of touch with reality. Like whatever, wherever you heard that, that, that's just some silly YouTube video that you heard. God doesn't operate that way, and God isn't like that. And, and Paul has labored, he's he labored in this whole book of Romans to, to say, listen, now there is a righteousness of God that's been manifested apart from your doing of the law. Even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. As a gift. Not earning it in some works-based personal righteousness. So we need to be rescued. Otherwise, we're enslaved. We're not in a family in that slavery place. We wouldn't be heirs if we were still enslaved. Well, look at verse 4. God has sent his rescue. We need to be rescued. Look look at verse 4. God has sent his rescue. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Do you note that? At the exact right time. All of history has has been going forward up until this one moment. So all of history was full of, And then God acts. And what does he do? He sent forth his son. That's what good fathers do. They take initiative and he gives life. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So now you see God the father and now you see God the son. What's God the son do? He's born of a woman and born under the law. Note those prepositions. Of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God, what else does he do? Sent forth the spirit of his son. So do you see the Trinitarian rescue here? By Trinity, I mean the historic Christian doctrine of one God in three persons, all acting in unison for our salvation. The Father is the life-giving initiator. He sends forth the Son in verse 4. He sends forth the Spirit of His Son in verse 6. The Son is the perfect image-bearer of the Father and is born of a woman, and He's born under the law in verse 4. And the Spirit is the overflow of the love of the Father and the Son, in which God shares His very nature with us and seals our adoption, seals us into the very family of God, puts heaven, as it were, on the inside of us. Now, some of you have kids, 
and some of your kids ask you the question, why? When they really want to pin you down or really annoy you, they will say, you know, they'll say, why, dad, or why, mom, at you? And you'll answer the question, and they'll ask another why. Well, why that? And then you answer, and then they ask another one, and, and you're like, I don't, I don't know why, you know? And so you, you get that. Have you ever wondered why? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer to, to, to three whys. So notice the words right there in this text of verse 4 through 6. Very important that you do. Notice the words to in verse 5. The words so that in verse 5. And the words and because. You, you, would, you would miss all that the Lord would have for you if you miss those three words. Why? Why and why? To, so that, and because. Notice the progression of, of the logic. Why does God do this? Why, why does God send forth his son, born of a woman, that's fully God and fully man, born under the law? Why does Jesus put himself under the law? Why does God the Son enter into the womb of a Jewish girl and then subject himself submissively under the law. Well, notice 2 in verse 5. To redeem those who are under the law. He goes under the law to redeem those who are under the law. We are under the law. We are not keeping the law. We need to be redeemed or bought back or purchased back. That's what that word redeem means. To regain possession of in exchange for payment. That's what redeem means. So he goes under the law himself. He submits himself under the law to regain possession of those who have broken God's law. That's us. In other words, we have no right with God. We have no place with God if we are lawbreakers with God. God's standard has not been met. We are under God's law and we are under God's judgment. Rightly so, because we are under the law and we've not kept it. So God, in his mercy, through his son, submits himself under the law to redeem. To redeem. We're right here in the text. Just think about that. You and I are right here in verse 5. You're like, where am I? I mean, sometimes it's not appropriate to go to your Bible and say, where am I in this passage? You're like reading Exodus 20. Where am I? You're not there. You're not in that passage. But you are right here to redeem, to regain possession of you and of me who are lawbreakers and far from God. Well, well, why? Continue on in verse 5. So that we might receive adoption as sons. He redeems so that we could receive adoption as, note those words, sons. Now, sons is a legal term used in all the adoption and the inheritance laws of first century Rome that Paul is using. And it signifies what you think it means, rights and status. People who had no rights and status when they were adopted as sons, according to Roman law, achieved status and a place among a family that they were not born into. There's no DNA linking this individual to this family. But through law, when adoption takes place, this person who is on the outside, who is an alien to that family, is, is uh, declared a son, declared a daughter. So here, here the son submits himself under the law to buy us back 
into a status. That's why some of your NIV translations will translate that adoption to sonship. That's the idea. Adoption as sons. Adoption to sonship. It's a status. It's a new place. It's a new identity. It's It's a new reality for you and for I. We're we're bought back so that we would be sons and daughters of God. And you could say, well, well, why? Why? If you you still have a why on that one. Well, he goes on in verse 6 to tell us why. Why would we receive this status? Why would God place over us enemies, aliens, Son, daughter, family. Why would he be so, so like that? Well, look at verse 5. It says, and, I'm sorry, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So God does this so that we can have this, so that we can have this. The very Spirit of His Son into our hearts. I mean, God God just takes one controversial step towards us after another, after another. One merciful step after another merciful step. And here, it, it doesn't get more controversial than the very Spirit of His Son, the very Spirit of Jesus entering into our hearts. That's what Romans 8 says. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So when, listen, Jesus is at at the Garden of Gethsemane and he's crying out, Abba, Father, those are are prayers of his heart. That's his heart. That's his life. That's, That's his personality. That's the spirit given animated personality of the Son of God in time in a garden in Jerusalem. And God is saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy you back. I'm going to place over you a title of daughter and son because so that, not just so you can walk around saying, I'm a son, but so that he could put his very life in us. That's why he did all of that. I mean, this is, it's it's amazing. The father sends his son to us to give his life for us, to put his life in us. Now, it doesn't get any messier than that. I mean, far before adoption or orphan care or caring for special needs is a messy thing for us. And it is a messy thing. It is a challenging thing. It is, it is messy to God. Love moves into the mess. The Father sends His only begotten Son into a broken world to die for this world. Jesus is born into controversy, inside the unwed womb of a girl, and into the need to Himself be adopted. Think about that. In order to adopt others. 
The Holy Spirit enters into our darkened hearts. How many of you have sinned today? How many of you have sinned today? And yet, God has said, I will never, never leave you or forsake you. How many of you are just wrestling with, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm challenged by this sin or this pattern in my life that I want broken and how can God love me? How could God be near to me? How could his presence be anywhere close to me? Well, his very spirit is comfortable with existing in a mess. It's not okay that we stay there, but he's comfortable being there to change us and transform us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit is there never to leave us, never to forsake us. So it's little wonder that the Spirit sends us out to love and to show the kind of mercy that God has shown towards us. Is it little wonder? I mean, this is the natural overflow of the first century church. They just knew this to be true of themselves. We're supposed to go out and, and act according to the way God's acted towards us. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. What? Visit orphans and widows. In other words, the marginalized of society in their affliction. There's no way to avoid a mess if you're going to obey James 1. There's just no way because the command is to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, not after the affliction is over, not post-affliction, not uh, we hope the affliction doesn't come. No, you go to those who are hurting in their affliction and that is how you show true religion. Now, anybody who, who knows what it's like to care and love, not just once or twice, but ongoingly, a child with special needs, a child that is disabled, anybody that's had, had and is, is, is caring for widows, foster children, or is pursuing adoption or have adopted, know that love comes at a cost and there is a mess involved in it, but it is a lovely lovely, joyful, life-giving, God-glorifying mess. There's a proverb, um, Proverbs 14.4 that says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. You ever heard that verse? It, it, it means, you know, a clean manger isn't necessarily great. It, it means, could mean that there are no oxen in the manger. And we live in a world where we want things, oh man, I'm just preaching myself here, uh, tidy and in order, and we don't want to pick up toys, and oh, we don't like a mess, and oh, we don't like to be interrupted. This is the world we live in, right? And, and love requires us to move beyond our comfort zones and, and into the kind of kingdom love that God's shown towards us. Well, in closing, look at verse 7. We have a new identity. Summarizes all that, he's, all that he said with these words. You could just get the whole book of Galatians in this one verse right here. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Here, you just hear that. Because I believe that, that somebody here today needs to hear you're no longer a slave. You might be acting slave-like. You might have come in tonight thinking you're still a slave. But according to this, you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. 
your daughter. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, an heir just means you have the legal rights. Now, that should humble us. That's not something we go around just, oh, I've got the legal rights of God. That's awkward and weird in our culture, so you don't do that. That's not a great application of this. But it's a humble place to realize that I belong to God. He's placed his love on me, over me, and in me. And I'm an heir to, to who God is and what God is. So uh, several years ago, many of you know that my wife and I had the, the joyful opportunity to adopt. And we have, we have legal documents that declare that our boy Samuel is an heir to all of my wealth, all of my financial wealth, which <laughs> isn't much, but on, on the will at home, he is a legal heir and a legal, he's a legal heir to that. There are legal rights. So I had to stand before a judge and put my hand up, as many people in this church have, and say, yes, I will, uh, I, I will care for him as my son. And uh, that was a joyful day for us. I still remember, the, I still remember that day. And, uh, and, and he's an heir. Everything that I have, if I, if I inherit a million dollars tomorrow, then he's a legal inheritance of that. And Paul is saying all that God is and all that he has and all that he ever will be, we are heirs to. You and I try to reach for status and try to earn things in the world that for goodness sake, we already have in God. We're already right, rightful heirs of all things. It's an upside-down world right now. We're not experiencing life as we will one day. In fact, we're told we won't experience life right now like we will be. But God's going to flip it. He's going to turn it around one day very soon, and we'll understand, I was an heir the entire time, and I kept living like I was not. I kept living like a slave instead of a son or a daughter of God. And, uh, and not only do we have these like, legal documents at the house, the biggest thing that we have is not a... I don't go home and curl up with a document. I won't do that when I go home tonight. I won't, that's up in the attic. I won't pull the ladder down, fish it out of a box, and say, Oh, so, so thankful for this, these legal documents. So thankful. Now, if something were to happen and somebody were to say, hey, that boy's not yours, I got the legal documents, Jack. Just try to take him away. So I'm not dissing the documents. Love the documents. Not going to do anything with those documents other than protect them. But I'm not going home hugging the documents. What am I doing? I'm going home hugging that boy and loving on that kid because he's mine. He's my boy. He's in my family. You know, it's possible to hold on to, to, to some truth that I'm adopted by God and forget the personal relationship that that signifies. You're no longer a slave. You're a son. You're a daughter. He did all of that to redeem you so that you would have this wonderful inheritance of having a whole new identity. That's why we love. That's why we move outward towards the world. I think we have a slide here. I wanted to show you if we have it. Do we have the slide of the, of, of the need in Texas? Yes. Okay, wonderful. 
this is a slide right now of the needs of foster care. And uh, ju- ju- we're just highlighting orphans, foster care orphans here in this slide right here, although we could talk about other, other aspects of this. Uh, what you'll see here are the, in the blue, I don't know if you can see that, in the blue are the number of children right now in America needing and ready for uh, to be adopted by a family. So they, they are ready to be adopted. And in black, that's in blue, so in black, these are the number of churches. So if you look at the state of Texas, there's 13,000 kids that right now are ready to be adopted. And underneath that are the number of churches. That's 27,000. So 13,000 kids and 27,000 churches. There have been times in the history of the church where certain things, certain evils, not every time, but some wonderful moments in the history of the church where the church rose up and did something and ended something. I'll give you one example. William Wilberforce, have you, many of you have watched the movie or maybe you read a book about his work among, uh, among how many years it took for him to end the slave trade in the country that he was in. Didn't end slavery altogether, uh, but from where he was, he and the church around him rose up and did something that they could do to end something. And if you just see the numbers, the numbers are, are something that if we were to take hold of the fact that our identity is, is I'm adopted by, by, by God and I don't have to worry about having all of my needs met and I don't have to worry about having, you know, the, the perfect house or the, the, you know, the perfect uh, tidy structure of my life and I have an extra room and a little bit extra funds and kind of a large heart for this and I feel like God's calling me to do that. If the church were to rise up, it, it could successfully in, in, with very little effort end the foster care system in the United States. It's endable. I mean, if, if one family in every third church adopted one child, every need on this map would be met. If, if, every, if, if there was a story, a Brianna story in every third church in Texas, and in Florida, and Louisiana, and around the United States. Just think about that. And I was talking to a caseworker today who works for, for the Denton Family Services, and she, she told me, she gave me the, the numbers for Texas, and she said that um, the need in Denton and the need in Collin County is huge. That they have, they have kids and they have uh, needs for homes, and they, they lack uh, homes in Collin and Denton County in a place where they would think that they would have plenty of opportunity. Why? Because of the affluence. Because you would think with all the large homes and with all the wealth of Collin County, of Denton County, and of all the surrounding areas, that they wouldn't have to send kids in this area to El Paso, to San Antonio, to Houston. But they're having to send kids hours away because they don't have homes right here in this, in this area. So it, we, we have the, the resources. We have the opportunity in front of us if we were, I think, to embrace fully our identity and really pray as a church. 
What are some practical next steps? Just here's a, here's a few steps that you could take in embracing fully your identity as an adopted son, as an adopted daughter. Maybe for the next few months or the next six months, I don't know how, how long you, you might need to do this, but if you've, re, if you've forgotten or maybe you've, you've never realized the doctrine of God as a father and of your identity as an adopted son or daughter, maybe you should start to embrace fully this idea and this truth. I mean, not, not way up here, but way down here, where it would just land home and color your perspective of, of everything in life and what the Bible teaches you. Here's a few books that could help you get started with that. I was going to show them up here. I hope we have a slide. There we go. Wonderful. Uh, the first book up there is Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It's a wonderful introduction to, to basically the basic Christianity, but it distinguishes Christianity from all other world religions, this concept of God as triune, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. And in there, you'll hear all about the concepts of God the Father's life-giving overflow who, uh, who gives of himself and, and creates a world and then sends a son to redeem it. Uh, the other one is Adopted for Life, some very practical helps both on embracing this concept of your identity as being adopted, and what do you do with it? How do you go and care for widows and orphans in their distress? What do I do personally? And then how can the church come around, how, how can the church come around and support people who are adopting, who are doing foster care? And then the other one is uh, by Sam Storms called The Singing God. Feel the passion God has for you just the way you are. And man, I, I, man, I try to pick up this book every year and, and at the beginning of the year and just let the truth sink in because we gravitate to the earned righteousness. That's, we gravitate that way. We've got to resist it through biblical truth of who we are in Christ. That book will help you as well. Here's another step that you can take. Get to know the stories of people who have adopted or fostered and see how you can support them. We have, I think, nine or ten families in our church who have adopted at some season of their life or have pursued foster care. And if those families wouldn't mind, if you guys could just come on up. I've reached out to several of you, maybe not all of you. But if you guys could stand up and come on up here. I just want the church to see who, who you all are because you can kind of... We were thinking of, oh, who all in our church has adopted or done foster care or who's pursuing it right now? And as we put a list together, it was actually a large, it was a large, larger group of people than I first realized. Uh, so it's a loud statement of the families and the people here. Each family with a story, each family different, a little bit of a different story about how they went through fostering or adopting and each with a wonderful uh, picture of how God moved in their hearts. And so they're going to stand and stay up here and, uh, and be here to talk about that with anybody who would, who would like to and also to pray for people. But I just also want you to know that every family who's fostering or adopting or every family who's not up here that's got a special needs child uh, needs the church to surround them. 
we, before we advocate and everybody go do this, we, we've got to realize that this is a collective church um, pursuit. Nobody can do this on their own. I, I couldn't, we, Michelle and I, we, couldn't, we could not do this on our own. These, these families here, no way they could do this on their own, can do this, can continue with, on their own. And so please, uh, please think about it in terms of how you and I can come alongside families that are doing this and support them. There's also going to be a table in the back where uh, the Shaws are going to be after this service and local, um, some local ministries and also some global ministries that can help you just, just learn more. Just learn more about it. Learn, learn what, what are some, some things I could do. Respite care. You know, going to a family and, and just, just babysitting for a day, basically. Taking a child and helping out for, for a day does a, is a huge help. Um, taking a meal to a family that's, that's pursuing it. Praying for a family that's, that's pursuing it. So there's lots we can do if we just learn more. Uh, and then lastly, pray for God to show you how you can care for orphans. Here's, here's some ways that we believe that the Lord's calling us as a pastoral team to care for orphans. The first thing is uh, we're going to set up an adoption fund for people in the church who would like some help and uh, need some help financially to adopt, to adopt. Adopting is costly. It's not only emotionally costly. Um, on top of all that, it's financially costly. It puts a financial burden on a family. So you could be out there today and you could say, man, I would love to do that if not only I had the church support, but also some financial backing that could help me to do this. Well, we're going to set up a fund and we'll, uh, we'll announce that when all the details uh, come together for that. But we just want you to know we're going to take steps of faith in this and we're going to set this up and you're going to be able to give to this and, uh, and it's going to go to families in the church that, that apply for it. Uh, secondly, we're going to plan on hosting an event sponsored by Show Hope, the ministry called Show Hope, called Empowered to Connect. This is a conference that my wife and I went to with other families in the church. I think it's four or five years ago now. Life-changing, extremely helpful, hopeful, informative conference. We're going to be a host site for that on April 8th and 9th. And Lord willing, we're in the building at that time. And so it might maybe the first kind of official event that we're doing at the, at the new building. Wouldn't that be cool? That sounds cool to me. So uh, if we're not in the building at that time, we'll have to make some other plans, maybe all caravan to another church. But, uh, but that's the plan is to be a host site for the Empowered to Connect on April the 9th. So at this time, we're just going to, we're going to pray. So if you can all stand with me, I'm going to close this in prayer. And then you can come forward and pray with anybody here on this topic of adoption, or maybe you just want to communicate, I'm for you, I'm going to support you uh, in, in your journey. The journey is, it never finishes. You're not like you get to a certain age and it's all done. It's ongoing. So you can come up and just communicate your support and pray for somebody up here, or you could ask for a prayer yourself. And then there's going to be information in the back as well. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.